There we go. Okay. Just being able to sing together about God's love and his faithfulness and Mark praying for us to be able to set aside Mondays. It's kind of a a challenging prospect, right, to talk to church leaders on Monday morning. You know, I love what Rick Warren says after his weekend services. He says, I don't even believe in God till 4 p.m. on Monday afternoon. Uh, My favorite is uh, Jack Hayford once came to our church with his wife to lead a time for ministers and wives in our area, uh, just kind of at Christmas time, and and he made the confession that uh, on Sunday evenings after their weekend services, all that he wants to do is watch a movie where lots of people die. So so I I don't know about our mental state. I, I tend to resign to the Lord every Sunday night, like I put in my resignation and he keeps rehiring me on Monday evening. So I don't, I don't know quite how that works, but uh, I know that we are together on Monday and I know that the Lord wants to, to bring encouragement to us. Uh, I want to tell you, for those of us who've not met, uh, just a little bit about my story so you can filter what I say through that experience. But I lead a vineyard church in Southern California in the northeast corner of Los Angeles County. We're part of the urban sprawl of Los Angeles, a a place of 14 million or so people. Uh, We're on the very outer edge. Los Angeles is a basin that kind of, as you move to the north and to the east, there are a series of mountains and valleys. The first one you come to as you move northeast from Los Angeles is the San Fernando Valley, the capital of the world. Then you're in the the next valley is the Santa Clarita Valley. And then the highest and last valley in the beginning of the Mojave Desert is the Antelope Valley. And that's where my church is in the high desert, 3,000 feet in elevation, 350 days a year of sunshine. Um, It's a community of about half a million people. uh, And we have more in common with the urban core of Los Angeles than we do with the radiating suburbs. We have the same issues of poverty and gangs and drugs and violence. Uh, There's only two places in all of L.A. County in the public library system that have armed guards at the library. Uh, And people always ask me, why do they have armed guards in the, they have armed guards in the library in Compton, famous for gangster rap in South Los Angeles, and in Lancaster where my church is. And the reason they have armed guards there is to prevent drug deals in the stacks and and prostitution in the stacks of the library, public library. So uh, that's where my church is. Uh, It's a very uh, interesting church. It's actually the second oldest vineyard that ever was. The very first church plant of the first vineyard that was in West Los Angeles came out to the Antelope Valley. That was 35 years ago this summer. Uh, I've been pastoring there. This is my 19th year. I went there from being here in England. I consider myself an honorary, uh, uh, you know, Englishman. Uh, we spent a few years working for New Wine in the early 90s. Uh, John Wimber loaned me and my family to David Pitches, and we spent a few years in the early 90s uh, just working and traveling and and trying to uh, build New Wine in those early days. So. Uh, my history uh, in my churches that I went there to this church that is one of the older vineyard churches, a very interesting and creative church, a church that uh, innovated a, a lot of interesting things. But by the time that I arrived in 1993, 
it was a church in decline, uh, not, again, unexpectedly, given uh, that the founding pastor, my friend Brent Rue, had died of cancer at 45. He was the, the, one, the founding and only pastor. I came there after his death. Uh, the church had experienced some division in the years leading up to that, and it had lost its focus, and, and that was my perspective. It was bankrupt financially. It was... Uh, uh, divided kind of congregationally, and, and it didn't uh, really know where it was going. And there was some question of whether it would survive. Those, that was all good to me, <laughs> believe it or not. That was all like, I thought, uh, you know, I can do whatever I want in this situation because it really was a matter of survival. And so it wasn't as though if it died, I did some terrible thing. Uh, so I went there after spending my years here in the UK working for New Wine and traveling around and talking about change and growth and renewal and looking for revival. And previous to that, I'd been in Kansas City, the infamous Kansas City prophets, and talking about revival and, you know, the great thing to come. And I was so sick of talking about something that's going to happen later. My personal background is I didn't grow up in church. I became a convert to Christ in university days. Uh, had no religious background, truly an unchurched person, and became a follower of Jesus. And I've always carried in my heart a, a deep passion for people like me, for people who don't know the Lord, who are truly, as I, I knew what it was to be without hope and without God in the world. And that sense of those that, you know, that mass of, of humanity that, that the Lord Jesus Christ died for and that he wants to gather to his saving embrace, that, that has always moved me, motivated me. And by the time I came to lead my church in 1993, I was very sick of talking about it and wanting to see it actually happen in the local church because I had been part of the Anaheim Vineyard Unfortunately, kind of after the days when a lot of growth happened through evangelism, the, when I was part of the Anaheim Vineyard in the in mid-80s, and the growth that was taking place was all transfer growth as far as I could tell. I was part of Kansas City Fellowship that became a vineyard. It's no longer a vineyard. As it grew from 600 to 4,000 in multiple locations, I led one of those locations and, and didn't, I can't think of a single convert. Not a single one. All Christians looking for a more vital experience. By the time I began to lead the Desert Vineyard, I was so... Uh, is sick the right word? I think it's the right word. I was so sick of the thought of, of just trying to, to gather Christians and give them a more vital or better experience that I, I, I wanted to bust. I don't think the church, my church that I lead, knew what they were getting. I was a time bomb. And I came in with one desire, and that was, is it possible in a local church, given whatever challenges it faces in the community that's in, is it possible for that local church to see a continuous harvest of people like I was, unchurched, disconnected, disinterested, possibly driven at some point by a combination of forces that would provoke spiritual hunger? Is it possible for a church to be knee-deep in that kind of harvest? When I, you know, tried to figure out how we would go about this, the kind of change that we would bring, the kind of direction we would take, 
I really asked the Lord, you know, what should we do? I, I took out a pad of yellow paper and and I wrote down everything I'd ever could ever think about that I knew from either history or present kind of experience that had any effective fruit in evangelism. You know, everything I could think of from crusades, you know, kind of large-scale crusades to personal evangelism, evangelism explosion. We talk in the vineyard about power evangelism and servant evangelism and, you know, all these different things. I just wrote down about a dozen things on my piece of paper and said, you know, what, what are we going to do? You know, what's this, what's the church that I lead? What is it going to use as a tool of effective evangelism? And I really asked the Lord, what do you want us to do? What should we do? Here's a, here's a list of what I know what should we do? And the Lord spoke to me as clearly as any time I've ever heard in my life. And he said to me, just do something. Just do something. He said, you take one step towards lost people and I'll meet you there. You just take one step towards them, I'll meet you there. That was almost 20 years ago now. And since that time, we've done everything on the list. Not all of it has been effective, but we did everything on the list. We've tried everything. We continue to kind of reach out. And the end result has been a, a continuous harvest. We see about five or 600 people a year come to Christ. And we have for the last 15, 16, 17 years. That's, uh, if someone had told me that in advance of doing it, I would have said, that's revival. But now, having experienced it, I just say, Lord, do more. Help us do more than this. And again, this is in a context that is not terribly religious. California is not, you know, part of the kind of Bible center of, you know, America. It is, it is secular. It is kind of widely spiritual in a very, you know, most people think California is a place of fruits and nuts. You know, that's kind of the general idea of it. And, and, and so it's in that environment of people who, or at least there's an openness and there's certainly a need in our community because of the desperation of people's lives that has allowed us, because we have made certain choices, to be part of the process of people finding faith. And as a result, our church has grown. And it's, again, it's that kind of growth, talking about growth that has happened because people are finding Christ. That's the thing that I'm most concerned about. I think there, there are principles, there are attitudes that we carry that will make us effective in growth in lots of different ways. It's not as though our church doesn't have people who come to us and have either moved into the area or come from other churches. That's certainly true. They're just not our target. They're not the thing that we're reaching for. So, I want to talk with you over the course of the three sessions that we have together and some time of ministry. I want to talk about making progress, I guess more than simple kind of church growth techniques. I want to talk about making progress forward in the mission that God has given us in the world to reach people, to gather them into his embrace. And I want to start, because maybe because it's Monday morning or because I believe, quite frankly, that, that being in church leadership, trying to lead anything, is really difficult, and that it's full of challenges. And I guess I want to start by, by addressing some of those challenges. 
And I hate to put you on the spot, and I know it is Monday morning, and, and what a, you know, wow, to me to ask you to, to do something. But I'd like you to take just a, a minute with a handful of people that are around you, you know, turn around, whatever. And I just want you to have a, a short discussion, a few minutes. What are the, the, like, I want the number one challenge that you think exists for churches and leaders to make progress forward in what God has given us to do to, to reach out to others, to reach out to our community, to grow our churches. What's the biggest challenge that you think? It might not be the one you're facing, but that you identify that's around you, the biggest challenge. Would you do that for a second? Just take a few minutes, turn to one another. What's the biggest challenge, number one challenge that we face? All right, let's throw some of them back at me. Throw, throw, throw some of the things that you've said back at me. What's the, what's the biggest challenge? Who's got something? Yes. Apathy is the biggest. Apathy in who? Lack of passion for God just generally or for the, oh, lack of passion for the lost among the body. The, that, yeah. Apathy, lack of passion for the lost. What else? Anybody? Pardon me? Not enough men. What else? Yes, please. Lack of love for one another? Yes. Great, yes. prior negative experience of religion or Christianity. Anybody else? Fear. Fear of, in specific, the future, fear of... Yeah. Yes. Yes. That's great. What else? Yes. People focused on other priorities, like making money and, and just not having time for God. What were you going to say, Mark? Uh, just the, the focus of being in church, so doing church well rather than doing mission. That focus of doing church well rather than mission. Somebody back here, yes. Yes, yes, the fear of doing something different, yes. Lack of confidence in who we are in Christ, who God has made us, and being able to share that. Hey, Henry. The disconnect between people in the church and people in the world about worldview and, and the way of looking at things. Yes. Making the church credible, believable again. Those, these are great. Yes. I'm sorry? Yeah, just opportunity, the chance to speak, have contact. Anyone else? Those are great. Yes.
Yes, yes, that the kind of consuming, I want more teaching, I want more whatever, uh, and, and just never getting to kind of the, the task. What were you going to say, somebody over here? Consumerism, great. Well, I want to begin our kind of time together, at least my contribution to it. I want to begin by talking biblically about some essential challenges of leadership. And I want to do that out of Numbers chapter 11, which I believe is probably the most important kind of section of Scripture about the challenge of leadership. It's that famous passage, we'll read it together, about Moses having a meltdown, uh, which I've always commiserated with. But here's how it goes. Numbers 11, the people of Israel, obviously, they're in process, they're in the wilderness, uh, and they're, they're facing difficulty. It says, now the people complained about their hardships in the hearing of the Lord. When he heard them, his anger was aroused, and then fire from the Lord burned among them and consumed some of the outskirts of the camp. When the people cried out to Moses, he prayed to the Lord, and the fire died down. So that place was called Taborah, because fire from the Lord had burned among them. The rabble with them began to crave other food. And again, the Israelites started wailing and said, If only we had meat to eat. Remember the fish we ate in Egypt at no cost. Also the cucumbers, melons, leeks, onions, and garlic. But now we have lost our appetite. We never see anything but this manna. The manna was like coriander seed and looked like resin. The people went around gathering it and then ground it in a hand mill or crushed it in a mortar. They cooked it in a pot or made it into cakes, and it tasted like something made with olive oil. When the dew settled down on the camp at night, the manna also came down. Moses heard the people of every family wailing, each at the entrance to his tent. The Lord became exceedingly angry, and Moses was troubled. He asked the Lord, Why have you brought this trouble on your servant? What have I done to displease you, that you have put the burden of all these people on me? Did I conceive all these people? Did I give them birth? Why do you tell me to carry them in my arms as a nurse carries an infant to the land you promised on oath to their forefathers? Where can I get meat for all these people? They keep wailing to me, give us meat to eat. I cannot carry all these people by myself. The burden is too heavy for me. If this is how you're going to treat me, put me to death right now. If I found favor in your eyes, and do not let me face my own ruin. The Lord said to Moses, Bring me seventy of Israel's elders who are known to you as leaders and officials among the people. Have them come to the tent of meeting, that they may stand with you there. I will come down and speak with you, and take of the spirit that is on you, and put the spirit on them. They will help you carry the burden of the people, so you will not have to carry it alone. Uh -uh. Yeah, I love this passage. I love the fact that Moses says to the Lord, take my life if you care about me at all, if, you, if I've had favor in your eyes at all, because I don't want to face my own ruin. There are challenges before him that he feels like are bringing him to ruin. And I think that is, uh, you know, if you're not trying hard enough if you don't face some of these challenges. The first one that I think is present in Numbers 11 that I think is directly transferable to the topic that we have about making progress, leading people into promise, leading people into harvest, leading people into growth, 
Uh, the, the first challenge is hardship. It's hardship. They, they had left, you know, Egypt. They were headed to the promised land. I'm certain after the, you know, plagues and their deliverance through power that their expectation was it was going to get easier. Isn't that what we expect? That it's going to get easier. You know, I've always, I mean, I have deep love and respect for Campus Crusade, but I've always slightly resented the four spiritual laws. Because when I was uh, not a Christian, people would, I get bombarded, you know, by, by well-meaning people who want to share their faith. I don't I can't remember how many tracks I got that had the four spiritual laws. And, and they're true. They're, it's right. God does have a wonderful plan for your life. But some of the way that evangelism is done kind of sets it up like you just receive Christ and everything's going to be fine. And it, it's not fine. For many people, things get worse. And that lack of, of preparation, that lack of resolve, that lack of expectation of hardship is a huge problem. And for us as leaders in terms of thinking, I'm going to take a group of people and we're going to do the mission of God together and we're going to grow and God's going to build his church and the gates of hell are not going to prevail against it. Let's just be honest and up front with one another. We're talking about hardship. We're talking about hardship. When I began to lead my church, I inherited about 600 people. Fantastic. As I began to lead towards others, towards reaching others, I lost a half of those people over the course of three years who were not just lost them, they were thought I was the devil. They thought I was like, like I mean, I'm, I, it's amazing, you know, like, and if I wasn't so desperate to reach for what I wanted to take hold of, the, the hardship of change, the hardship of actually, you know, making something, you know, fruitful in the right way, it is enormously uh, difficult. And it doesn't get any easier. We're not just talking about the internal hardships of, of trying to lead something. We're talking about the situation, too, that we're in. The world has changed, has it not, in the last few years? It's, cha it's fundamentally changed. There is an economic shift that has taken place. There is a, a, a brokenness that is part of the dynamic that that is not going to be overcome in the way that we just return to the way things were in the, you know, kind of the boom of the tech years or anything like that, particularly in California. You know where I am? That, that I, six weeks ago I said to my church, I forget what the context of the series we were in, but, but it was related to what we were talking about. And I said, I want to know, you know, this is thousands of people. I said, I want to know who's unemployed. Who's underemployed? Would you just be bold enough to raise your hand because we're going to pray for you? And, and it was, of the thousands of people that were in the, all those services, it was 40% or more of the entire thing. Unemployed or underemployed. Housing prices in our community have fallen 70%. I don't know. I don't even know what people are talking about when they talk about recession. You know, it's a cataclysmic, you know, you know, earthquake that has happened where I am, where people are desperate. You know, we feed people, uh, we feed, you know, just provide a meal once a week. And, 
and and the numbers and the and the difficulty and the, uh, it's just it's an incredible and and so in the face of hardship whatever it might be circumstantial in terms of kind of the culture of the thing or the direction or or trying something new I'm so glad we mentioned that and you know just the fear of change and all of that there's hardship involved with that let's just be honest and, and we should be like not only steeled for that ourselves or having to re-steal ourselves, we, we also need to, you know, be communicating that in a way that, that doesn't leave people in this perplexing place like somehow I've been given a raw deal. That's what's happening in Numbers 11. And their response, which is to complain, like this isn't what we expected, this isn't what we wanted, their, their complaint only multiplies their problem because then the Lord's angry at them and fire burns on the outside of the camp and they suffer loss that is God-directed. That's the worst. Like, you know, not only are we losing, but now God is against us in some way. And so complaining, obviously, is the disastrous response to hardship. There's got to be a better response that recognizes that we have to push through what we face in order to reach the promised land. We, there are things to go through. I know you, you all know this, but... Well, it's good to say it, that it's hard. If we're going to talk about church growth, if we're going to talk about making progress, let's just, it's hard. It's going to be hard. There are hardships involved in it. A second thing that's here in Numbers 11 that is, a, I think, a deep challenge to leadership that's transferable from Moses to us is the rabble. That's what Numbers 11.4 calls this group of people who's craving other food. <laughs> I, 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 I love the rabble. The rabble, you know, in Numbers 11 context is probably, you know, a group of people. Israel was obviously not very well defined, you know, under slavery in Egypt. And the tribal kind of links and bonds were uh, sometimes sketchy. And, and that sense of... of who's who and who's what and it's entirely possible that as Israel left Egypt as a slave community that there were other slaves who kind of got on the bandwagon as well or just could have been you know just the general mixture and we're going too because we're you know gonna get something so much better and the rabble basically is this core of people a smaller core within the whole that is there for what they can get out of it does that sound familiar in church life? Consumerism. That they're there for what they can get out of it. And the problem in Numbers 11 is that their influence is shaping the whole. And so their complaints about what's being served up, what's being offered to them, how they're, how they're being fed. You know, that's the worst thing for a pastor, isn't it? I'm not being fed. You know, I'm not really getting the solid meat, you know, it's like what every pastor wants to hear, you know, from a, a member of, of their community. Uh, you know, this, this sense of, you know, again, I'm not, I'm not trying to say that every, you know, every person's, you know, decision about what, what's really on offer is, is out of a sense of being rabble, but there is a, a rabble spirit, you know, that's about what do I get out of it? It's very self-focused. It's amazing to me to watch in our situation where we have been so intentional about reaching to people 
who are, are not convinced or committed yet. And we have hundreds involved in our weekend services that are not Christians. They're in process. They're searching. They're engaged. They're asking questions. That, you know, and, and, and so it's so fascinating to watch someone cross over that line from being one of those people who's not convinced or committed to being a Christian, to self-identify, I've committed myself to Christ. And, and it only takes a few months of them being a Christian for them to say to me, couldn't we change the church to be more for me now? Right? The very thing that helped them become a Christian, but now they want the church to be for them as a Christian. Wow. The, the, the fallback position in the human heart is self-interest. That's the, that's the low water mark. That's where all the water runs. And so if, if we're going to overcome that, if we're actually going to be a church for others, which is essential to church growth, then overcoming that sense of, of not the fact that people won't be there or that, that you won't have to deal with that. You always have to deal with that. It's just the influence of that on everything else. Is that going to be the dominating cultural influence? Is that spirit of rabble that, hey, I, I, I'm in it for what I can get out of it and I don't like what I'm getting? If that's going to dominate, then you're going to end up like Moses. God, you know, take me now because I don't want to face my own ruin. There's nothing quite like being a pastor in a church where everybody expects you to make them happy. Wow. I, I, I have this conversation with people. I just don't feel like I'm being fed. And I feel like, you know, the, the quality of what we serve is pretty high. But I, I always say to them, is your expectation that you're going to come and be with us for an hour, you know, plus a week? and that that's going to be sufficient for your dietary needs spiritually? Is that your expectation? Because I think, you know, I will say to them, how long have you been a follower of Christ? And 20 years, you know, and like, you don't know how to feed yourself yet. You're 20 years old and you can't get cereal out of the cupboard. You can't, you know, make a casserole. What in the heck are you thinking? You're 20 years old in the Lord and you... Your expectation is once a week I'm going to serve such a, an all-encompassing meal that you'll have no other need? Like, that's just crazy. But that's rabble talk. That's, that's I'm here for what I get out of this. And, and there has to be a, a fundamental shift for, for those, certainly, who are mature enough that I'm not here for what I get out of it. That's a byproduct. I will get out of it, but I'm here for what I can give to it and what I can contribute to others. That, that shift that we make, Philippians you know, 2 talks about, where because of the comfort, encouragement, and strength, and tenderness, and compassion, and fellowship of the Spirit that we have being in Christ, that we're able to you know, think of others as better than ourselves, as their needs come first, as their you know, you know, they're a priority. That's only possible in, in that place where, where we begin to recognize what God has done and what we can do with what God has done. And the rabble will never recognize that. They are just simply in it for what they receive from it. And that's okay. I mean, I don't even, like, fault that necessarily. But that cannot be the thing that dictates the agenda. That cannot be the thing that colors and flavors the community as a whole. 
the third thing that's here in Numbers 11 that is a, a significant challenge, transferable challenge to our situation, and that is manna. Manna is God's supernatural provision for them in a place of hardship, in a place of transition, in a place of movement and progress. Manna is their supply line. Now, the problem with manna is, you know, many-fold. Uh, you know, part of the problem is that of familiarity, if, of kind of consistency and sameness. And, and so the people who initially responded to manna, it's so, it's so interesting. You know how Exodus describes how manna is? It, Exodus describes manna as tasting like wafers made, layered with honey. Cookies, you know, like cakes. That's how it tasted them at first. Now it's like coriander seed and, and looks like resin and tastes like something mixed with olive oil. You know, it's like dirt. I mean, it's just like not appealing because familiarity has bred contempt. Consistency and sameness has, has caused, you know, like a loss of appetite. And, and, and so obviously the, the answer to that would be kind of, you know, a kind of wider me, you know, menu, which is what they're advocating. But the problem is that manna has come to them as a test, not simply as provision, but also as a test. That's what it says. Manna is a test. What's the test? The test is trust. The test is that a, a man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. The, the, the test is that a, a, a relational link with how God is leading, that the answer then is not kind of mixing up the diet. The answer is a, a deepening level of trust and commitment to God and His Word. And so uh, that's so, to me, you know, transferable to our situation because there are some things about how God sustains us that have a consistency and a sameness, and we want variety. I mean, in my life, just personally, you know, well, not as much today because Nancy and I have shifted our diet and, and it's gotten less adventurous, but, but it used to be like, I thought, wow, you know, I have Thai today and Mexican tomorrow and, you know, whatever. It's just like that, that diversity is like, you know, that's very uh, appealing, but there is in part a test in our life in terms of how God sustains us that doesn't have that wow factor in it, that doesn't have all the spice and the, and the thrill. And I, I fear that some of what's been sold to us in in kind of church, like here's how to really renew your church, really has more to do with leeks and onions and garlic than it does with what God wants to actually sustain us by. And the fact that the supernatural, this isn't simply just, you know, this is how they made it. This is God's supernatural provision. And the supernatural provision comes in a way we don't like it. We don't like the fact that, that manna, for instance, comes... And with dew on the ground every morning. You know, after a while, the people had to think, is this really God? Or is this just like, we've never lived in the wilderness before. It keeps showing up with the dew. Is this, maybe this is just a natural process. Maybe they started even to doubt it was God. And then, it's not, if maybe it's a natural process, and then you've got to work it. 
you got to gather it, you got to grind it, you got to make it into something. You know, it's not like it, it's not like a you know meal tray drops down from heaven. It's like it's something you got to make something of. That God's supernatural provision has to have sweat ethic in it. You got to add kind of this sweat investment in it. None of us like that. None of us like that about healing, for instance. None of us like that about about the way that God sustains and empowers. And we don't like that it sometimes looks like it could be hand in glove with a natural process and it's hard to associate which one is which. We want our supernatural to be so supernatural that it's just, you know, it can't be anything else. You know, it can't be like close to any kind of natural process. And, and how, how often does... This healing happened totally separate from, from being closely aligned to some process. It, in my experience, not that often. So there's so many ways in which this supernatural provision of God that is manna, you know, tests us and, and makes us have to exercise faith, which seems to be the full point. Have to be in that place of humble trust. And the people don't want to be in that place of humble trust about manna. They want the wow. They want the flavor. They want the entertainment. They want a, a lot of things that that is killing Moses. Where am I going to get meat to eat? You know, for these people to meet. How am I going to satisfy the kind of cravings that they have? How am I going to stimulate their appetite? It's just crushing to him. So much so that he wants out of it. Fourthly, a leader's challenges facing the future. There's nostalgia. Nostalgia. The people look back, oh, Egypt, we had melons and, you know, we had free food. And, yeah, and we had slavery and we had, you know, I mean, it's just incredible how nostalgia works. Nostalgia is so based on selective memory, right? Like, I, I just think it's hysterical today, you know, that the clothes of the 60s are back in fashion in California. I saw someone came into the church the other day, a young girl had like fringe on and like a, a, a thing in her, you know, like a headband on. And I thought, I thought if you'd actually lived through the 60s like I did, you know, you probably really wouldn't celebrate this as, as much, you know, or the old joke is if you, you know, if you're nostalgic for the 60s, you weren't really there, you know, you... Uh, and, and it's just, uh, you know, I, church life in America, this is fascinating. One of the larger churches in my community is a fundamentalist Baptist church that thinks people like, um, oh, who, who might you know? I mean, none of these names. Someone like Jerry Falwell is like a liberal. I mean, they are just so tight. It's only them and everyone else is wrong. And, and if you go on their site in their campus, it's like going back to the 1950s. Every, every person has a coat and a tie on at church. Every woman has a long skirt. And they've basically, this is what church does. We sanctify culture at a certain moment as being more innocent or pure or godly or right. And, and we want to sanctify that culture. So people like the Amish, you know, uh, they, you know, they've sanctified culture from the 15th century in Germany, you know, like, and, and, and they continue to ride buggies and, and you sanctify culture at a certain moment. The vineyard, you know, we want to sanctify 
1983, you know, like, and, and I love what Rich Nathan says to us in the vineyard, you know, if, I, if, if God's ever going to recreate 1983, we're primed for revival, you know, like, you know, we're going to be there, we're going we're gonna to be vessels, really, to, to bring in the harvest, you know, we, we tend to sanctify culture in a moment and make that the thing that we're, that we, it's all based on nostalgia, it's all based on selective memory. You know, when people say, oh, you know, go back to a more innocent time like the 50s. Really? Really? Virulent racism? Sexism? My mother, God bless her, who had to raise her family, you know, without any help, in the secretarial pool, that's the only thing that was available to her in some corporation where a bunch of lecherous men constantly sexually harassed her. That's, that's really what we want to go back to? We really do want, I mean, it's such ridiculousness. And in the church, we have, oh, when this revival happened or when that happened, oh, my gosh, I'm part of the vineyard. And it's like, oh, if we could only go back to the times when John was leading great conferences. And, uh, yeah, there were great things that happened, but uh, that's the past. And uh, that's not the future. Here are the people who say, oh, if we could go back, really go back to Egypt, go back to death, go back to slavery. You know, yeah, we had melons and onions and leeks, but but our children were being, you know, exploited and and abused. And the only place to reach for the future from is the reality of the present. The imagination of the past or the perspective of the past, it is not possible to get to the future from there. And so whatever we appreciate about the past or acknowledge as something good or, or wish we could have more of, that's all fine. There's nothing, you know, there's nothing inherently wicked about, about having a sense that, man, those were good days. But, but to, as a leader, to be in the present and to shape a community that is moving towards the future through hardship, with a temptation to be self-centered and self-interested and self-focused, and, and to do that has to honestly be fairly immune to nostalgia, fairly resistant to nostalgia, appreciative, grateful for the past, absolutely uninterested in going back there absolutely uninterested in returning to the past. Back to the future doesn't work. <laughs> it's a fantasy. And so the, what does the future hold? You know, obviously we, you know, we have the ability to pray, to ask God, you know, to, to fill what is coming with, you know, all that we need and maybe more that has been in the past. But to, to have that, you know, Put our hand to the plow and turn backwards. Jesus said, you're, you're not worthy. It's not going to work. Uh, it's, not, it's not the way the field's going to be plowed. Lastly, let's talk about this and we'll take a break. The last thing that's in this passage in Numbers 11 that I think is really, really critical about moving forward and making progress is isolation. Isolation. Moses has become isolated and in that isolation, he's lost his perspective he, at, at several very crucial points. He's lost his perspective on his role. He believes that God has done a terrible thing to him, that he's put the burden of all these people on him. And the way he describes that burden is so telling. He said, did I give birth to these people? Is it really, you know, for me to 
carry these people like a parent that carries a child to the promised land. That's his perspective. It's so interesting because in Deuteronomy, you know, after getting through this period of time, that in Deuteronomy, when Moses rehearses their history in chapter 1, he will describe what happened very differently. He will say to God, you as a father carry this people as a child all the way to give them this land. He will have a very different perspective, but he feels overburdened. He feels like God has, you know, put it all on him. And in that place, he's despairing. He is deeply troubled. He, he has a, a sense of disconnect from God's provision. How in the world are you going to satisfy the needs of these people? Of course, if you know the story as it advances, they're going to get meat to eat in buckets full. You know, the quail are going to come up to their hips and are going to make them sick how much meat they have to eat, you know. So he's disconnected from God's provision. He's disconnected from really his mission or role, his responsibility in all of this. And he is absolutely undone by it. And then there's the answer. God doesn't pull the trigger on his assassination. God doesn't say, okay, come on home. God says, here's the answer, Moses. We're going to get leaders from all the tribes, and I'm going to put the spirit that's on you on them. And they're going to help you carry this burden. You know what the answer is? A different small core than the rabble to influence the whole. This is the genius of leadership. That it is possible to lead a very large group of people with a small core of committed, unified people together. That you can make enormous change and you can shape a whole culture of something with people who share the same spirit and the same goal. And this is exactly how I began to make change in my community was by, by changing the culture through having a core that was committed to that change and working that change through that core. When I first arrived at the church that I lead, literally you would come through the doors. We had some rented facilities and you would only see the backs of people. There were circles of people all in their little cliques with their backs turned, and if you were new or not part of a clique, you had no way in. It was the most interesting kind of social dynamic, and I thought, how am I going to change this? And I thought, the, you know, even like all, all of our ushers were, you know, they were like rude. You know, like they were talking together as a group of ushers, and, no, you know, like not even handing out bulletins or whatever. You know, I just thought... How am I going to change this? Where, where am I going to start? You know, I didn't start with the, the few people that were on staff, you know, that I could actually threaten because I was paying them. I didn't start with them. You know, I started with, I started finding like the friendliest people I could find. And, and I'm going to make you all ushers. And here's, here's our goal. We're going to turn this thing into a friendly, welcoming gathering point. That's the first thing we're going to do. And I need you to do it. And I sold the vision of what, what that would mean, what it's like to come in. You know, say you're searching for God and, and you think maybe there's, a, there's in church I'd find something like that. And, and you're going to come in and, and you come in it, it, and, and every, it's, it's like 
No one thought about you coming. You know, have you ever been invited to someone's house, you know, for a meal, and you show up and you knock on the door, and 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 they come to the door, and and the the woman's hair is in curlers, and she has her shower robe on, and the place is a mess, and oh, 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 yeah, we invited you. Oh, you know, you just feel sick inside, like I should never have come. Uh, this is they they didn't know I was, they didn't remember I was coming. This is so embarrassing. That's how it is to go most churches if you've never been there before. It's just like that. It's like they didn't know I was coming. It's so embarrassing. I should never have come. I wish I'd never come. I can't tell you how, how kind of universally true that is. It's like, I'm sure they're, they're enjoying each other there in their messy family, but uh, there's no place for me. Uh, our thing in our church is that, that we want to be a family, but we just decided to be an unusual family where our doors are always open and extra places are always set at the table. And therefore, somebody's welcome anytime. And that means that, that not that we don't pray over our meals because we have guests there. No, we pray in a way that includes them and is thoughtful about who they are. And we don't sit around in our underwear watching TV because the door is always open. So we do lose some intimacy. We do lose a, a little bit of that freedom and intimacy that we would have if it was just us and we didn't care about anyone else. But but we're going to turn our heart outward towards those who might come towards us. And, of course, we do a lot of things to help that people come towards us. But the issue fundamentally is, you know, we're going to move this culture in a different direction. Moses had to move this mass of people towards the promised land through the hardships, with the sustaining kind of sameness of manna with all these challenges but how was he going to do it he was going to do it with a small core of committed people who had the same spirit and were headed in the same direction you want your church to grow then you got to get a core of people that that understand that's what it's supposed to be and how it could be that way let's pray together father thank you so much for this morning i thank you for my friends i thank you God, that we can share together and wrestle with some things and pray that you would give us the same spirit. Lord, cause us to share in the spirit that you've put in all of our lives to empower us and to direct us, to comfort us and to challenge us. Help us, Lord. Fill us with your spirit today, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to take a little coffee break. Are we not? Um, coffee break. So there's coffee served out the back. Come and use here. Don't forget the toilets are out there, but also up the stairs. Feel free to use those. Please bring. feel free to bring your coffees back in here. Enjoy. We'll be back in about 20 minutes. Thank you.